God. We grieve to think how cold we've been to the claims of your authority and the wooing of your love. How you've given us a path to walk and yet we chose another. How you've shown us the better way, but we've chosen a shady way. How you've presented the beauty of wisdom to us, but our eyes still chase after folly. We ache to comprehend how little we have trusted thy promises, feared thy threats, obeyed thy commands, responded to thy grace. You say come, and we run. You say trust me, and we look for other securities. You say there are consequences for our sin, yet we live like there aren't. You have shown us grace, and in return, we give others law. You beckon us with mercy, and we don't even realize how much we need it. God, we did not come here to put on a show. We did not come here to impress. We did not come here to act like we are not sinners. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your word. If we do not hear from you in this next hour, we will not have the strength to walk out of this building. Help us to leave with greater affections for thee, deeper knowledge of thee, and a wider love for your local church. We know this Old Testament text reveals Christ. Your son, our savior, the crucified one, the risen one. If at the end of this exposition we raise both hands and say we see Christ, then it's been a success. It's been a good day. We don't have to remember this sermon for the rest of our lives. We just need it to meet us in our pain. Meet us in our hurt. Meet us in our confusion. Your word meets us wherever we are. And your word brings us to assurance. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of your sovereignty over history and our current circumstances. Assurance of Christ's sacrifice for sins accepted on our behalf. Meet us where we are and bring us to assurance. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Make a wish. Any wish. That's effectively what God tells Solomon in this chapter. Here's a blank check. Write anything you want on the top line. Ask me for anything. What kid hasn't laid in bed at night and thought, man, if I just had three wishes. If you could wish for anything in the world, what would it be? I read a few answers to this question. One said, I wish for world peace. Another, I wish for $10 million. Of course, the most common, I wish for unlimited wishes. Some responses really got to the meaning of life, like these. I wish that I loved exercise as much as I love chili dogs. <laughs> I wish all spiders would just die. There's no use for them. In our text, God grants a wish and Solomon makes a wish. The key verse to understanding the two chapters is verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. God granting a wish, Solomon making a wish. Perhaps you are wondering, what did Solomon wish for? We will get there. But before we answer that question, we must answer another question. Why of all people would Solomon receive an offer like this? Especially considering verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter 
and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. We get a glimpse of the first years of Solomon's reign. He's now a major player in international affairs. He makes an alliance with the king of Egypt. This alliance will avert future wars. It's most likely with Siamon, one of the last pharaohs of the 21st Egyptian dynasty. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we see small signs of something amiss with Solomon. He's entering a sinful alliance. And with Egypt of all places, there is a complicated history with Egypt. They enslaved God's people for 400 years. Egypt is the oppressor. Egypt was not a friend of God's people. Nowhere was hanging out with the Egyptians or marrying Egyptians a good thing. To seal the alliance, Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. She's not a Yahweh follower. She's a foreign princess, a pagan woman. She brings into the house the worship of foreign deities. This arranged marriage may be common for international treaties, but it was not common for Israel's king. It was forbidden for them in Deuteronomy 7. In addition, we know this was not pleasing to the Lord because before Solomon ascended to the throne, he was married. Solomon begins accumulating many wives. Verse 2. The people were sacrificing at the high places. However, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. These high places received that name because they were open air stone pillars placed on top of small mounds or knolls. They were worship altars on elevated ground, hence high places. Shrines located at slight elevations throughout the land. Apparently, Israel went multi-site with their worship services since they didn't have a central worship site. They had an east campus, west campus, north campus, south campus, downtown campus, a multiplicity of worship sites. These high places distracted from the principle of centrality in worship. High places are mentioned over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Syncretism was a real danger because these altars were also used for pagan worship. Some scholars contest since the temple wasn't built yet, this was an acceptable practice for Israelites to worship. Once the temple was completed, the worship at high places should have died. I don't hold to that position. The law of Moses commanded to destroy all high places. This was the same law which David commended to Solomon on his deathbed. Solomon was perfectly willing to allow high places. David would have never done this. By the way, why hasn't Solomon finished the temple yet? He delayed building the temple because his heart was distracted with a foreign wife. His delay in building the temple caused the people to sacrifice on these high places. Solomon isn't as clean as we want to make him out to be. Not even in his early reign. We want to say he started out well but went bad. I don't think he started out that well. Not according to these verses. It's like preachers want to whitewash Solomon and never acknowledge the sin early in his reign. Two glowing deficiencies of Solomon are put on display. Foreign wives and foreign worship places. A multiplicity of wives and a multiplicity of worship sites. He went multi-wives and multi-site. Now, a glowing accolade. Verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statues of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. For that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings 
on that altar. <laughs> In the whole of the Old Testament, no one is described quite like this. This is not said of any other person so far in Scripture. Not any individual in Israel's history. Solomon loved the Lord. We see Solomon's first recorded acts of worship. He's sacrificing to God. A staggering act of devotion by any standard. 100 burnt offerings. The word only in verse 3 seems to indicate that Solomon was doing everything right except he sacrificed at high places. His first recorded acts of worship are tainted. What a troubling contradiction. We are given two negative appraisals of Solomon, then one positive appraisal. How are we to evaluate this man? When you read commentaries on this chapter, you have your pro-Solomon advocates and your anti-Solomon advocates. Those who paint Solomon always dressed in white and those who paint Solomon always dressed in black. We, we want to make him all good or all bad, but we are not all good or all bad. We are inconsistent. Like Solomon, we have our moments of glowing accolades followed by moments of multiplicity of sins. Solomon loves God, but he's flawed. We, like Solomon, are a troubling contradiction. We, like Solomon, are a troubling contradiction. When we look at our own hearts, this should not be surprising to us. We do the right thing in one moment, then sin in the next. God's blessing on your life doesn't mean there aren't any sins in your life. The story of Solomon, this is the grace of God working through flawed people. This is the only way. This is not to excuse his sin. It is to awaken you to yours. We tend to be blind to our own sin. Excuse our own sin. We are not obeying the Lord flawlessly. It's always an imperfect love. It's love mingled with sin. Sometimes I really think I have this Christian life down pat. And then there's a sinful thought. Or there's a moment I neglect to bridle my tongue and my tongue sets a forest on fire. Solomon's love was fragile and so is yours. He loved the Lord but he had other loves too. Other loves that always competed with his love for the Lord and loves that he sometimes sadly Gave into. How do we explain Solomon? No. No. How do we explain ourselves? In our Christian life, at the same time, there can be glaring deficiencies and glowing accolades all in the same period. The reformer Martin Luther had an answer for this. He called it in Latin, Simul Justus et Procator. That means we are at the same time righteous and sinners. We are simultaneously sinner and saint. This explains our inconsistency. Our love is imperfect. It always is. Jesus perfects our love. You don't. Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, <laughs> ask what I shall give you. In other words, I grant you any wish, one wish, any wish. God incites Solomon to choose, which incites me to protest. How dare God give Solomon this wish? Solomon doesn't deserve to ask for anything. 
Exactly. How dare God give Solomon this wish? Solomon doesn't deserve to ask for anything. Exactly. Solomon's life isn't squeaky clean. Solomon is touring around with foreign women and foreign worship. He doesn't deserve God's visit. He doesn't deserve this wish. We never deserve God's visit. If his visitation rested on our worthiness to be visited, we would go unvisited. God doesn't come down because your work merits his presence. God doesn't give us gifts because we earned them. God visits the undeserving. God visits in grace. Now, some scholars who do not hold to my position get really excited with this verse and they say, see Kyle, God met with Solomon at a high place so the high places can't be sin. I would simply point out that Solomon immediately leaves this high place, travels six miles to Jerusalem before the ark of the Lord to offer sacrifices, the correct place of worship. I see this more about God's mercy than Solomon's obedience. He came down while Solomon was in sin. Verse 6. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne, to sit on his throne this day. Solomon speaks for the first time in this chapter. He spouts off blessing after blessing before answering the question. He spends time in praise before making his wish. This is an explosion of gratitude. His praise begins with the greatness and faithfulness of God. Appreciation sweeps over his heart. In his praise, he gets low and looks high. He's aware he's undeserving and he's aware God's love is steadfast. God's kindness pursues. Verse 7. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. In other words, God, you've placed the kingdom in my lap and I am wholly inadequate to undertake such a task. I don't know how to go out or come in. This speaks to his cluelessness. This is an idiom for skills and leadership. He's lacking them. I'm a child. A, a young lad too inexperienced for the challenges ahead. He's 20 years old. He recognizes his smallness and the kingdom's greatness. He considers himself utterly ill-equipped for this task. Solomon expresses his humble dependence. How differently this humility is from the little boys who lead nations today and speak with such adequacy. No dependence on God. They have it in themselves to lead. Solomon says, God, these are not my people, but the people you have chosen. You have elected them. They belong to you, God. Now, the wish. Solomon wishes for, verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Solomon prayed for political wisdom. He wished for the ability to be a godly statesman. The phrase here, understanding mind, 
means a hearing heart. He wishes for a discerning heart, a listening heart, an obedient heart. I cannot lead others without your help. He's not asking to never die. He's not asking for $10 million. He's not asking for fame. His wish is not overly generic. He doesn't just pray for wisdom in general. He needs wisdom specifically for that call to govern a people. Verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statues and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. His unselfish request pleases Yahweh. God delighted in his response. It's a godly request. Solomon receives a strong affirmation from heaven. I will give you wisdom. Wisdom that will set you apart from other kings. Wisdom that will enable you to govern Israel. Wisdom beyond your imagination to conceive. God reveals to Solomon, since you didn't request money or fame, I will give you those in addition to wisdom. Additional blessings you didn't ask for. You will receive the very gifts that you pass by in your request for wisdom. God will be the source of Solomon's wealth and his ever-growing worldwide reputation. No other king will compare with you. Verse 15. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. When you receive a gift, you thank the giver. He went to the correct place to offer sacrifices. Solomon saw his need for God's wisdom. He felt a healthy inadequacy, which leads me to ask you, do you see your need for God's wisdom? Is there a healthy inadequacy you feel? Do you see your need for God's wisdom? Is there a healthy inadequacy you feel? You must learn this from Solomon. God gave Solomon a monumental task, and that task drove him to ask for wisdom. To be clear, you will never have the task of Solomon. That was a unique one-time situation in God's unfolding drama of redemption. However, just because it's not that monumental task doesn't mean you do not face some monumental tasks. You ever feel like Solomon? You have a responsibility as a parent or a teacher or an executive or a housewife or a student or a superior or a business owner. Man, this is a heavy burden. You feel a sense of inadequacy for the task? Do you feel the weight of governing your family? Disciplining your children? Leading your wife through this next transition? Do you need wisdom on who to hire? Who to place in that position? You're not sure what major to take in college? You're not sure how to navigate the single life? It is okay to feel the weight of that healthy inadequacy. No need to run to a pill to get rid of that feeling. Paul said it like this, who is sufficient for these things? Do you face that toddler and think, I am a toddler myself. 
Do you face that task and think, this is above my human ability? Do you face that mound of decisions that needs to be made and think with Solomon, I am a little child. I cannot go out or come in. If you finally see your need for God's wisdom, if you finally feel the weight of the task before you, that is a really healthy, a really needed place. And that's 90% of the battle. Because the problem is not that we can't get wisdom. The problem is that it isn't on our wish list. The problem is not that we can't get wisdom. The problem is that it isn't on our wish list. Or to switch it to more biblical language, our prayer list. What happens is we grow self-sufficient. I've got the needed tools to make this happen. We possess too much confidence in our own self-sufficiency. The greatest thing you have going for you is a healthy inadequacy. When Solomon asked God for wisdom, the Lord answered his prayer. But God desires to give wisdom to not only his kings, but also his children. Did you know that God invited you to make a wish for wisdom? Not a wish, but a prayer for wisdom. He invited you to pray for wisdom. James 1.5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Wisdom comes only to those who first admit they need it. You need to go to God and say, I am like a little child. I can't go out and I can't come in with this situation. I need your wisdom, God. God delights in dispensing wisdom to those who desire it. Have you, have you ever seen a child grow so frustrated with a task? Maybe putting together some Lego set or, or completing some craft. You sit back and watch the frustration grow. You are waiting as a parent for him or her to say, will you please help me? Are you in your current situation trying to figure it out yourself? You're getting all red-faced angry or pale-faced discouraged, slamming the Lego pieces on the floor and dropping your head. Why don't you look up and ask God for wisdom. He's been waiting for you to recognize your own inadequacy for this task. Maybe I should apply this to pastors. Since I am one. Pastor, you are no king. But you must beg God to give you wisdom over the small part of Israel that he allows you to govern. Now, let's look at the outline that I have withheld from you until this moment. You type A people. I know it's been rough. It's been a rough wait for you, hasn't it? You're used to getting that early on. Praying for wisdom, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Demonstrating wisdom, chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 34. Solomon demonstrates God-given wisdom in a series of decisions. We first have the prayer for wisdom. Then we are given the proof of wisdom. And what areas will Solomon demonstrate this wisdom? He will exercise judicial wisdom, governmental wisdom, military and political wisdom, and unmatched to this day, wisdom. Let's look at judicial wisdom first. Let's slip into the back of Solomon's courtroom. He, the Supreme Court Justice of Israel, is presiding over an unusual and undoubtedly a no-win case. Let's see his judicial wisdom put on display. Verse 16. Then the two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Settling local disputes is essential for a successful reign. 
we have before us one of the most famous judicial cases in history. Two prostitutes make their way before the king. The cultural lowest in the land before the greatest in the land. Evidently, all the lesser courts were unable to decide on this tough case. So these two women are able to appeal directly to the king. They live in the red light district. They tell Solomon it is a house. It is a house. We would call it a brothel. Neither woman has a husband or a boyfriend. They are ladies of the night. They have no family to fall back on. They are where they are because of sinful choices made for themselves. Verse 17. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. And we were alone. Watch her say the same thing three different times. And we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house. Only we two were in the house. Two single mothers living in a brothel. Two little baby boys growing up in this environment. No fathers to protect or provide for the boys. Each boy had a biological father. But the prostitutes have been with so many men so many nights they have no idea who the father is. Like with most boys who grow up without a father, statistically, it seems these boys are destined for a life of crime. The case continues to unfold, verse 19. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I arose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. How tragic. How tragic. One of these mothers carelessly smothers her child. Was she stone-faced drunk and passed out? Or was it an innocent, horrible mistake? She was just in a deep sleep. Either way, the baby was smothered to death. The baby fought for air. The baby tried to cry. The baby took his last breath. Something about seeing a dead baby that rocks any man or woman, no matter how emotionally strong. The mother who smothered her child apparently switched the dead child with the living child. This was not mixing up babies at the hospital and finding, it, finding out about it later. No, no, this was a deceitful swap. I was sound asleep when she took my child. We sympathize with this mother who had her baby kidnapped. We can envision her waking up to the cold purple infant body laying next to her. There is no electricity in the brothel, so it takes the morning light for her to realize this is not her child. We know from the beginning who the wrong party is. The narrator tells us King Solomon still doesn't know. Verse 22. But the other woman said, No! The living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Notice the narrator note here. Thus they spoke before the king. Can you see this scene? Tempers are enraged. Shouts are going back and forth. I can imagine them pulling and tugging at this little boy. He's mine. No, he's mine. He's probably crying. Solomon has to be thinking. I didn't ask for this job. I never went to law school. The one woman shouts, how do you know what happened? You were sleeping. I'll tell my side of the story. She begins to mount her defense. They went back and forth that way in front of the king. It degenerated into a yelling match. Order in the court. I said order in the court. There are no independent eyewitnesses. The other women of the night that live with them were working during the night. That's business hours. 
There is no second witness to collaborate the testimony. It's a classic she said, she said case. The scene is set. It's a crime with no witnesses. The plaintiff and the defendant both have the same questionable character. Solomon must devise some way to solve this case. He's charged to resolve an otherwise impossible situation. He summarizes the royal dilemma. He repeats the problem in verse 23 and to make sure he has a grasp on it. He doesn't say, let me look at that baby. Who does that baby look like? He has your eyes, but your nose. No, Solomon is a man. It's no way he can tell who that baby looks like. <laughs> Only women can do that. Solomon can't run a DNA test. The science hasn't been developed yet. No cameras or fingerprints can be evaluated. Seems like this case is going to go unsolved. Verse 24. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two. And give half to the one and half to the other. What, what a monster. This is not God's wisdom on display. This is cruelty. This is madness. This is insane. Has Solomon lost it? Solomon's attendant grabs the baby and places the little cooing boy on the table. He then raises a sword and makes a downward motion. If I were in the courtroom, I would have to be held in restraint. Stop this. Now, as it turns out, this is a clever ploy by Solomon. He decides to try the case based on the mother's maternal instincts and motherly compassion. His wise heart found a way to settle the dispute. Verse 26. Then the mother whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall neither be mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. Solomon knew the woman who was willing to give up the child to save his life was the true mother. This prostitute has a moral compass, a motherly compass. Solomon rules. She is his mother. This is a gift of God. The ability to distinguish good from evil. He elicited the truth hidden by the woman's lies. Her cruelty has been revealed just as the other woman's kindness has emerged. This cutting the child in two shook the real mother. She would rather give up her son than see him die. Look at the sheer horror on her face. Turn to sheer wonder as the attendant places the baby boy back into the arms of his mother. Verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do, to do what? To do justice. I would like to pull out three heart applications from this case trial. Three heart applications Idolatry in the heart, justice in the heart, conviction in the heart. Idolatry in the heart, justice in the heart, conviction in the heart. First, idolatry in the heart. True wisdom reveals the heart's idols. This lying woman's idols were exposed. For the lying prostitute, the desire to mother was stronger than the grief for her dead infant boy. See, motherhood can become an idol. I've seen it. I've seen it with some women who have passed through this church. 
an idol that makes you sin in unique ways. It consumes them. They can't be happy for another woman who says she is expecting. They want it so badly they can't think about anything else. Motherhood is her idolatry. If motherhood is the most important thing in your life, you care about self, not children. Don't be self-deceived. She, she didn't love the child. She loved herself. That's why she threw the dead baby away and kidnapped another one. It was never about the baby boy. It was always about her being a mother. First, idolatry in the heart. Second, justice in the heart. We are in a world where people steal babies and kidnap children. The evil that goes on in our world is enough to shake anyone and keep them up at night. Some of you have been on the receiving end of horrible acts against you. The terrible evils we see go unpunished make the heart cry for justice. Everyone desires justice, even the prostitutes. The day is coming when justice will finally be served. It's a dish best served by the Creator. Justice, not just for prostitutes and kidnapped children, but for every rape victim, for every abuse victim, for every atrocity going unpunished. Do you see Solomon's concern and competence for justice? He exercises his wisdom to benefit the powerless. This justice that our heart yearns for becomes characteristic of the reign of the Messiah. Jesus will come and in perfect wisdom dispense justice. Who will act for the kidnapped babies? We get so up in arms about, we got so up in arms about Solomon possibly cutting a baby in half with a sword. And rightly so because that's murder. Cutting a baby with a sword or cutting a baby with a scalpel is still murder. You can give it the name abortion, but it's still murder. Every life matters to God. I'm going to say some adult words here, not for children. Every life matters to God, even the life of a bastard child or a sleazy prostitute. Our king will come and settle every case even the ones that didn't make it to trial. Our heart yearns for justice because justice is coming. We get overwhelmed with injustice. It's the tyranny of the gavel. But we will not hold the gavel in the end. Jesus will. First, idolatry in the heart. Second, justice in the heart. Third, conviction in the heart. Church, hear me. This little baby boy in our story is not the only little baby boy in the Bible. This mother watching her son about to face death was not the only mother recorded in the Bible watching her son about to face death. There was another mother. She wasn't a prostitute. She was a virgin. The Holy Spirit placed a baby boy in her womb. She birthed the baby, knowing that the baby had no earthly father. The difference in this story and our story is she knew who the father was. God. Just as the mother in our story watched her son face possible death, so the mother, this mother, watched her son face possible death. Not, not death with a sword, but death on a cross. One mother said, don't kill him. And the other mother said, nothing. Nothing. A good mother says don't kill him. A good mother says whatever she has to say in order to save her child from death. A good mother doesn't stay silent. A good mother screams to save his life. Why say nothing, Mary? 
because she knew he came to face the sword. He came to be killed. I call it the psychology of the cross. If Mary knew Jesus wasn't virgin born and it was a huge hoax, would she not at the cross just blurted out, he's fake. We made this whole thing up. He was conceived by Joseph. But she didn't. She could look at the cross and bear it because she knew he was born for that cross. He was born for that sword. She held a conviction in her heart that he was the Messiah. That he would pay for the sins of the world. Beloved, there was a child that was never put back into the arms of his mother. You know why? Because he was placed in the father's wrath. God doesn't forgive sins because he's sentimental. He forgives sins because Jesus died to pay for them. You should see your sin as crucifying this Christ. Your sin is the reason this son was not put back into the arms of his mother. Believe on Christ and be saved. Demonstrating wisdom. There's judicial wisdom and then there's governmental wisdom. Notice verse 1. King Solomon was king over all Israel. Let's pause here. We see in these 19 verses Solomon's governmental administration. His cabinet. His wisdom in placing the right people in the right places. These are his staff appointments. And you may be thinking, Kyle, I'm already seeing the long list of names. This is not exactly riveting stuff. Don't just see the details, 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 or a long list of names. Solomon is using wisdom to lead others faithfully and slot them skillfully. He's an organizational genius. He organizes and maintains an efficient administration. The result of his wisdom gets the kingdom together and unified. Now, I'm not going to read through the list of names in verses 2 through 6, but I am going to slot them for you. This is Solomon's cabinet, his, his high officials. Leadership in every branch of government. Religious, military, economic, and administrative. He places priests, advisors, army commanders, chief of laborers, secretaries, recorders, palace managers. Solomon is trellising. The vine Israel has grown and needs proper trellising to grow further. This is the trellis in the vine. Solomon's trellis, God's vine. Solomon covers domestic and international affairs. This is the, is the domestic trellis. Here is the international trellis, verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king in his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. Solomon divided Israel into 12 districts, each one ruled by a governor. These governors collected taxes in their district and then gave it to the central government. They are to make sure the supply lines to the royal house do not dry up. They each had to stock the commissary for the royal court. You might think of them as regional managers. I'll let you stumble through the pronunciation of these names in verses 8 through 19 later. I simply want to point out that this is not the same as tribal divisions. This is new. They are not 12 tribes anymore, but one united kingdom. Split into 12 districts. This division cuts across the original tribal structure in Israel. Some have more territory than others, you will notice. Because of Israel's size and diversity, this trellis, this structure, is required. Marvel at the complexity of the kingdom that requires such a sophisticated system. Each geographic territory responsible for one month. Solomon keeps chaos and waste from running life. You hear me? Solomon keeps chaos and waste from running life. This is all so well-ordered. Philip Ryken calls this the joy of order. Judicial wisdom, governmental wisdom, now military and political wisdom. Notice verse 20. Judah and Israel 
were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. There was a population explosion. The nation's numbers grew. The nation was in good spirits. Tribal dissension seemed to be banished. Food was plentiful. Material blessings abound. They were as many as the sand by the sea. Does that sound familiar to you? Any bells ringing? That's Genesis 22:17. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Roughly 1,000 years before Solomon ascended to the throne in Israel, God called Abraham and gave him this promise. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. This is a reminder of Yahweh's fidelity to Abraham and company. God keeps his promises. Verse 21. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. The countries David conquered remained loyal subjects throughout Solomon's reign. Solomon levies taxes and miraculously they seem excited about paying them. It's noteworthy here to point out that the boundaries described in this text essentially match the scope of land promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. It took centuries for Abraham's descendants to grow into a great nation and possess the promised land of Canaan, but God was working to fulfill his promises. The land Moses desired, Joshua conquered and David subdued, is now filled with Solomon's people. Verse 22, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 23 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. We get a glimpse here, church, of the king's table. 800 gallons of fine flour, 1,600 gallons of meal. His administration required vast resources for its operation. See the size and splendor of this court. David sustained anywhere from 14,000 to 32,000 people. That's a lot of mouths to feed. It required a large number of domestic animals and game animals. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, organic, no hormones. Solomon must have been crunchy. 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fat and fowl. This is all for one day. The meat consumed is striking for luxury and quantity. Geese, guinea fowl, hens. A feast every day of the week. The narrator wants you to see the bounty at the king's table. Look at verse 27b. And for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Will you look at me? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God brought his people to the land he had promised them. The land of milk and honey finally feels like it. Verse 24. And Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Peace on all sides. God promised this in 2 Samuel 7. The narrator gives east to west dimensions and north to south dimensions. In all directions there is peace. Peace both foreign and domestic. The wars were over and there was plenty for everybody. Peace and prosperity marked Solomon's kingdom. Solomon was always at peace. We do not read of him riding off to battle. Verse 26. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. This speaks of Solomon's magnificent wealth. 
This is simply a huge number of horses acquired. Solomon later became a dealer in horses. He bought and sold them. Then he went on to race horses and dromedaries, camels. He collected horses like rich people collect expensive classic cars in their 30-car garage. Verse 27a. And those officers supplied provision for King Solomon. Now verse 28. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. Everyone seemed to be content paying their tribute. The economy booming, government working flawlessly as God intended. This is a kingdom worth defending and maintaining. Never did the crown shine so brightly as when Solomon wore it. Demonstrating wisdom, judicial wisdom, governmental wisdom, military and political wisdom, and finally, unmatched to this day, wisdom. Solomon displayed wisdom in not only judicial, governmental, military, and political arenas, but his wisdom dipped into every area of life. He went to such depths in these pools that they are still unmatched today. Verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. The breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. <laughs> Solomon's breadth of understanding, his, his comprehensive knowledge was unmatched in his day and ours. He outshone the famous vaulted wisdom of Egypt. The reputation of the king started to ripple around the world. You don't keep wisdom like this hid in a corner. Verse 31. For he was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda the sons of Mahal. And his fame, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. For Outstanding wise men are mentioned here, famous in their day, forgotten in our day. This is like Solomon, this is like saying Solomon was far wiser than Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, and Galileo Galilei. Verse 32, and he spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,000, not four, not six, 1,005. He, he's a sage, a sage above all sages. He, he wrote 3,000 Proverbs. We have fewer than 600 of those recorded for us in the book of Proverbs. He wrote 1,005 songs. That's a specific number. We have maybe two of those, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, verse 33. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and a fish, and people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. His wisdom excelled in its scope. It covered the majestic and the mundane. He was the authority in all realms. He studied the sciences, plant life, animal life, botany to biology. His botanical interest were all inclusive from big trees to small plants. Cedars of Lebanon, that was the tallest tree with the greatest spread. Hyssop, that was the smallest stunted plant that grew in walls. This encyclopedic knowledge was highly valued in the ancient world. The prolific nature of Solomon's observations would have garnered him the most followers on any social media platform. His pithy way of stating truth. Twitter would have loved that. Did not Twitter, it's X, the artist formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> His exhaustive sweeping knowledge of the natural world made him an internationally known and sought after expert. <laughs> How are things going, Solomon? Wonderful. It's never been better. Everything is peaceful, everything is plenty, everything is perfect. Friend, don't forget. Seeds of spiritual decline can be sown in times of plenty. 
Seeds of spiritual decline can be sown in times of plenty. Everything is going so well, I miss times in the Word. I have so much extra money, I bought a toy that keeps me away from God's house on Sunday. My family unit is so tight, we miss the church gatherings to do things together. Seeds of spiritual decline can be sown in times of plenty. God gave regulations for Israel's king back in Deuteronomy 17. You know what they were? He must not acquire many horses for himself. He must not acquire many wives for himself. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon is up to bat. Strike one, strike two, strike three. Times are so plentiful right now, I think I'll buy a bunch of war horses. Wait. God said don't buy war horses because you will begin to trust in those war horses instead of him. The horses are a ticking time bomb. The multiplicity of wives, that's another ticking time bomb. Church, I am not asking can you walk with God in times of trouble? I am asking, do you have the spiritual fortitude to walk with God in times of plenty? Your business has never been better. Your kids have never been more well-behaved. Your bank account has never been so full. You have never been so high on the ladder of success. Don't go multiplying horses or multiplying wives or multiplying anything that makes you less de dependent on God and less aware of your sin. Jesus is a better Solomon. Jesus is a better Solomon. Solomon brought temporary peace. Jesus will bring lasting peace. The wisdom, of, the wisdom Solomon exercises on a national level is a shadow of Jesus exercising perfect wisdom on an international level. When Solomon is ruling, there is still a baby dying, prostitutes working, high places in operation, and horses being bought. Solomon doesn't measure up to the ideal king presented in Deuteronomy 17. We need another now I admit, Solomon's, Solomon spreads a nice table. A lot of meat on that table. But his table pales in comparison to the one Jesus will spread at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Behold the bounty at the king's table. Solomon, he runs a good government. We've seen it on display. But Jesus comes with a government on his shoulders. No one can trellis. Like Jesus trellises. We all need a better government than the one that is on offer to us. We need Jesus' government. Solomon rules a limited, defined territory. Jesus rules over the universe. In every way, Jesus outstrips Solomon. Now here's the last truth. Christian... God gave you something better than a wish. He gave you a Savior. God gave you something better than a wish. He gave you a Savior. You, you know what Proverbs, the, the book of Proverbs tells us? That wisdom is a person. Solomon in Proverbs personifies wisdom. He makes wisdom a person. Wisdom has a name and that name is Jesus. God knew that you being dead in your sin would never wish for a savior. So he sent one anyway. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. Wisdom clothed in flesh. Christ is our wisdom. Father, you do not exist to be our genie in a bottle. We exist to give you the glory due your name. 
we do that now. You are worthy. You are worthy. We declare your worthiness. David handed Solomon a kingdom that stretched from Egypt to the Hittite-controlled land. But you handed Jesus a kingdom that stretches from east to west, north to south, more than near land. You handed Jesus the entire universe. Amen.